This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And then let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 23 to 27 this morning. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would come now and give us grace as we look to your word. Lord, we pray that we would see things clearly, that we would see the value of being made in the image of God and this incredible gift that we have been given of life and and breath. And Lord, that we would also see the path to true life and to true joy is giving that life over to you, the one who has died to purchase a people. And so, Lord, we pray we would know, not just on paper, but know that if someone offered us the trade for everything in this world, all the money, all the fame, we could have all those things, or we could have you and all of the rejection, all of the difficulty that would lie ahead of us, that we would always see the way the true value of knowing you. And so, Lord, for that to happen, we just pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in us to daily deny ourself, daily take up our cross and follow you. Show us that, we pray, in your your word now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've taken an English class recently or taught an English class, you might be familiar with the Elements of Style manual. It says this, A sentence should have no unnecessary words, a paragraph no unnecessary sentences, for the same reason that a drawing should have no unnecessary lines and a machine no unnecessary parts. A single overstatement, wherever or however it occurs, diminishes the whole and can destroy for the reader the object of the writer's enthusiasm. C.S. Lewis agrees, says it in a little bit different way. He says, in writing, don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the thing you're describing. I mean, instead of telling us a thing is terrible, 
Describe it so that we'll be terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we read the description. I wonder if one of those words that we use sometimes to make us feel or how to know to feel about things without really describing it is the word Christian. Not used as a noun especially, that man is a Christian, but as an adjective. It's a fine Christian school or even a Christian business or a Christian uh, movie or recording artist or even Christian restaurant with good chicken sandwiches. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll actually diminish the, the whole and lose the object of our greatest affection. I can't think of a more relevant passage for a Christian church than the one that's before us this morning in Luke 9. Peter's just made a true confession in context here about Jesus' identity as the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God. And Jesus then quickly follows that statement up with exactly what his mission as Messiah is, namely to suffer, be rejected by the Jewish leaders, die, and be raised on the third day. And speaking of the cross and death and rejection would have been shocking for the disciples to hear. But Jesus now gives them an even harder pill to swallow. He begins to talk about another cross, not his cross, but their cross. Our cross. Jesus describes clearly and logically what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a disciple. If C.S. Lewis were grading Jesus' words here, he would get an A+. He doesn't just say, follow me, be a Christian. He describes what that looks like in such a way that we don't walk away thinking, yeah, this is just kind of a piece of cake. We got this. Jesus is kind of like having... Um, a, a blessing that's awesome, but I can continue to live my life the way that I like to live it and just have him along for the ride. We don't walk away from this description with those thoughts in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is saying, you are going to follow me in my own walk of suffering and death and a cross that leads to glory. That's what it means to be a Christian, to follow me. Here's the way he lays out the picture of discipleship. If you look at the passage, what you have in verse 23 is really a call to discipleship. Notice those verbs that he uses there. Deny, take up, follow, right? That's the call to discipleship. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those are three ways of really saying the same thing. Jesus' life direction is going to now be your life direction. Follow me. Then Jesus goes on to lay out the logic, or you might even say the incentive, for doing that. So the idea is follow me, verse 23, and then the reasons. Notice how all the sentences in verses 24 to 26 start with four. You could just insert because there. Four, 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 because... He gives us those reasons behind it. And then he ends with really a promise of hope in verse 27, that some will will see the glory of the kingdom even before they, they die. That's the flow of the passage as you're looking at it. So if you're taking notes, the outline would look like this. Number one, a call to discipleship, verse 23. Number two, the logic of discipleship, kind of the why, 
Okay, that's verses 24 to 26. And then the hope of discipleship is verse 27. It's what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's no better way to spend your life than to lose it for his sake. Only when you do that will you find it and truly save it. So let's look first at this overarching call, the main idea of the passage, a call to discipleship, number one. As we said last week, Peter's confession marks this transition from the focus of a, on the person of Jesus, chapters 1 to 9, to the work of Jesus, 9 and, and following. And that also includes a vision for following Jesus. So on the heels of this prediction about his own suffering and rejection and death, he just addresses all, all, all who would want to come after him, all who would want to follow him. And that is in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Notice how universal the language is that Jesus uses. He's, he's been speaking directly to the twelve, but here he broadens out the call to all. Right? And if anyone would come after me. So there's no exceptions. This is not a special call for the apostles or even those that would want to would end up being martyrs for the church or or, or, or an overseas worker in a dangerous place, or those that are exceptionally mature in the Christian faith. No, these are the terms of discipleship for anyone and everyone who would seek to follow Jesus. This is who Christians are, and this is what Christians do. So let's, let's hover around those, those main verbs here in verse 23. The first is deny. You must deny yourself. Deny yourself. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. He doesn't say deny your sins. He doesn't say deny certain indulgences, clean up your language or whatever it may be, particular things. He says deny yourself. The personal control that you have over your life. Self is the problem. It's the killer. A self-centered life is high-handed rebellion against God. Friend, do you know that? Do you understand that? You know you will not go to prison for being a selfish person. It's not against the law to be self-centered. You will go to hell for being self-centered. An eternity in hell for centering your life around yourself. You can't be self-centered and follow Jesus. It doesn't get more radical than this. Listen to John Stott. Listen to John Stott as he speaks about um, you know, what it means, kind of the flavor of what Jesus is after when he says deny yourself. He's, and this is brilliant, I think. To deny ourselves is to behave toward ourselves as Peter did toward Jesus when he denied him three times. Treat yourself that way. The verb is the same, he says. He disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying 
to ourselves luxuries such as chocolates, cigarettes, and cocktails, although it might include this. It is actually denying or disowning ourself, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness. John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Great book if you haven't read it. If you don't own it, you should. Just think about what those people are saying to Peter as he's being accused of being with Jesus. Do you know this guy? Are you with him? Didn't you used to hang out with him? You're one of his? No, I'm not. I don't want anything to do with him. I'm not a part of that. That's what Stott's saying we should do to ourselves. All of our ourself. Friend, I wonder if you understand that. Any attempt at discipleship, at following Jesus, that doesn't renounce your control over your life and your self-love is not actually following Jesus. It's using Jesus as an add-on to your life. Jesus would make my life better. But as one author said, if we would make him our master, we must first remove ourselves from that position. So you can't have it both ways. Is Jesus your Lord? Or are you in charge of your life? And friends, we, we know that we cannot bring about this kind of radical change, this kind of declaring war on ourself and our sin on our own. Dying or denying, rather, yourself implies that you're a new creation. It implies that you have a new self. If I deny myself, there is the me who is denying myself, and there is the me who is being denied. There's a denying self and a denied self. That's the miracle that has to, has to happen in us by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the new birth brings about. The, the old self loves human approval, honor, comfort, this present life more than it loves Jesus. But the new self, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've trusted in Christ, we've been made new, treasures Jesus more than all of those other things. And so we deny the old self by the power of the Holy Spirit. Deny the self. So how do we do that? We, 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 we play offense and we play defense. Defensively, we, we, we starve out the old self. We don't give it what it wants. We wake up, you know, with, with that, those desires screaming at us, those plans calling out for us to, to walk in them, but not even a crumb. We agree we're not going to even give a, a crumb, a bit to it. And then offensively, we want to replace all those affections with affections for Christ. A self-focus being replaced with a focus on Christ so that there's so much Christ in my heart, there's no room for those selfish desires to grow and sprout and dominate me. In other words, we're, we're putting it to death. Putting it to death. That's what that second verb illustrates there. So deny yourself and then take up your cross. Take up your cross. The, the cross did not have a connotation in Jesus and his disciples' day that it does today. Uh, it is... Um, literally a decoration for us. It's jewelry. Um, it's, a, it's a very popular tattoo to have. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Great things. I'm glad there's a cross behind me 
when I, when I preach every week, uh, it represents the center of our gospel hope. Though we have to remember here in, in this moment, it's seen as an instrument of execution. Disgusting, grotesque, offensive, brutal. So something similar for us today might be a lynch mob's noose. And all that, that kind of that visceral reaction that comes up when you think about that and see that. The Romans not only used crucifixion as a public and brutal way to execute criminals and send a message to all, a warning to all, but they made criminals carry their cross to their own execution. The disciples knew what this meant. Leon Morris uh, says this, he says, when a man from one of their villages, the disciples' villages, took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Taking up the cross meant the utmost in self-denial. Again, so that, that phrase can lose its meaning if we're not careful. It goes well beyond the ordinary trials of life. We sometimes complain about people or circumstances by saying, well, it's my cross to bear. But Jesus has in mind here a much deeper reality than difficult people or, or bosses and even physical challenges. He means a death to self and taking up the consequences that come from being united, associated with him. Johnny Erickson Tata speaks to this well as a quadriplegic. Having suffered more than most people physically, she's learned the difference between the ordinary struggles of life and cross-bearing. She says, our affliction becomes that which ushers and shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like him in his death. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. And again, we're still in verse 23. Notice how often this takes place. Daily. Verse 23, daily. Take up your cross daily. So part of the everyday experience of a disciple of Jesus. We put our old self and its desires and plans to control us on the cross every day. It's not a, it's not a one-time thing that applies at the beginning of the Christian life or an occasional sacrifice we make along the way. The, the old self with its indwelling sin is a little bit like morning breath. You just have to imagine, you may not experience this, but I'm pretty sure you do. No matter how well you brush your teeth the night before, no matter how powerful the mouthwash that you use, when you wake up in the morning, there it is again. And you have to start all over in putting it to death, killing it again. So I think you should make Galatians 2.20 in your mind and kind of write that verse down, both a statement of the reality of who we are as Christians and our prayer. It's who we are, and it's our prayer daily. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So first, a reality Lord, that is who I am. I'm going to be able to 
take up my cross because you've taken up the cross already. I'm going to be able to die to myself because you died in my place. I've died with you. The hard work, the heavy lifting, the real crucifixion of sin has happened. So now I can, I am enabled to obey. I am enabled to walk in this holiness. And so, Lord, help me today, prayer. Help me today know that I've been crucified with Christ. And help me today know that it's no longer I who live in the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm not going to live by my feelings. I'm not going to live by what I see only. I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God. And so I'm going to take up my cross daily. I'm going to deny myself and follow Him. My independence is over. It's his life now that I live. I'm with him. That's the third verb that we see there in Jesus' call is follow. Follow me. Not follow myself. Not follow my heart. Follow him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Trust him. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done before us and for us. Before us and for us. Jesus denied himself of the glories of heaven when he took on flesh and came to this world to save sinners. He denied himself the pleasures of sin in order to fulfill the law on our behalf. He denied himself esteem and glory on earth and endured public shame, nakedness, and rejection. He denied himself protection from pain when he submitted himself to the painful death on the cross. Not just physical pain, but cosmic wrath-bearing pain for the sins of all those who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Him. Jesus did this for us. And His self-denial redeems His cross, atones, and purchases us. So friend, if you don't know Jesus, our call to you this morning is to turn from your sin, turn from this walk of self, of following after self, And put your faith and trust in Jesus alone who died to take the penalty that you deserve on the cross and rose three days later victorious over sin and death. That by faith, you trusting in Him, you can be forgiven of your sins, made righteous with a holy God forever. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's because we are saved by His work on the cross that we are then enabled to seek to follow Him. And that is the path to true and everlasting life. True and everlasting joy. The call of discipleship is a call to something better. Better than anything the world can offer us. That's what the second kind of section here is is arguing. What Jesus is arguing for, the logic of discipleship. That's number two. Verses 24 to 26, the logic. So the main idea is the call. Verse 23, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And then the explanation of why, verses 24 to 26. Maybe the incentive for walking this narrow road in this life. He gives three reasons and and they all begin with four. Because, follow me because. So let's start there in verse, verse 24. Four. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
Save his life in these verses, I think, can be understood as trying to save your life or if someone would save their life. It's an aspiration, an aspiration for self-saving, self-preservation, self-protection. So if you would try to keep your life for yourself, to own your life, to direct your life yourself, to be the master of your life, that's what's in, in view here. If you were to try to go that route, which all of us know that route, we know that route. We know what that means. I, so, I know what it means so, so well. I'm getting the best out of life for myself, for my advancement. Jesus says that road leads to certain loss. You will lose your life by trying to save it. By trying to live that way, you lose it. You lose everything. The only way you keep it, ironically, he says, is to go and surrender it to Jesus. One commentator says this, the Christian must realize that he is given life not to keep it for himself, but to spend it for others. Not to husband its flame, but to burn himself out for Christ and for men. I think it's a great illustration of life as a fire. And you can either just tend it all your life and make sure that it's glowing and, and warm and you're, you're nice and cozy. Or you can go get a torch and take it out to others that they might have some of that fire and life. That they might know some of the joy and warmth of knowing Jesus Christ. Losers are keepers, Jesus says. That's his logical reason for you not to try and save yourself. If you, if you do that, if you live for this present world only, you will come to the end and lose your soul. It will look like you have it all together, but you're eternally bankrupt. You will lose everything. And the opposite is also true. If you lose your life, and that's not necessarily a call to martyrdom. It may be, but for most of us in this room, it likely won't be a call to actually die for the gospel. It may be, but to surrender your life for whatever he deems worthy for your life. Surrender it all. Give it all fully to Jesus. It may look like when you do that, you're losing, you're wasting your life. It may feel like on days that you're wasting your life, but you have found it. We can't save ourselves. This world is not our home. In fact, if the world were to give you, offer you its best, all that it has, it would be nothing, Jesus says, in comparison to gaining true life. That's verse 25, the next because. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Remember, Jesus walked this before us. Luke 4, Satan's first temptation in the wilderness is to show Jesus all the kingdoms of this world, in one moment, Jesus, all of this, check all of this worldly power and acclaim out, I'll give it to you if you just worship me. All this authority and glory. And Jesus refuses, in our place, refuses, because he knows all that the world has to offer is nothing compared to knowing his Father. Nothing compared to what is awaiting him on the other side of the cross. Follow me, he says, in this. This is a rhetorical question in verse 25. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Uh, it's a rhetorical question, making a statement. Zero is the answer. Zero profit to gain the whole world. It's a good incentive not to give yourself to the idolatry of, of money and fame and, and reputation. Like many my age, I grew up uh, watching uh, the, the sitcom Friends. Some of you did that, and you know uh, recently one of the stars, Matthew Perry, passed away, um, unfortunately. And uh, when he was uh, early on in kind of his battle with drug addiction and, and I think overcoming it somewhat, he, he, he had this quote that surfaced a lot this week and last week. Um, if, if you've seen it, he says this about being, being young and kind of hungry for fame and, and wealth. He says, now all these years later, I'm certain that I got famous so that I would not waste my entire life trying to get famous. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. And nobody who is not famous will ever truly believe that. But he gives it to us for our, our profit. Zero profit. It's not the answer. In other words, if there's zero profit in owning the entire world, why would you give yourself, why would you let your affections be, be tied up in all that the world has to offer? Your soul can't be bought by all the wealth in the world. It's that, it's that valuable. You will live forever. You are eternal, made in the image of God. You were made for something better, greater, more satisfying than gaining the whole world. And so, so young people, I, I want to encourage you um, to, to, to really latch on and think about this. Think about the way that, that this can make its way into your own heart and mind. Fame and money is not the answer. It's what we often look at as the answer. Factor that into the music you listen to and the shows you watch and the athletes you, you idolize. Your dreams and your end goals. Or if your main motivation for studying is so that you can make good grades, get a good job, make lots of money. And that's it. Just know that if you had a machine in your backyard that printed money, it wouldn't be enough, and it wouldn't be worth rejecting Jesus or just adding him to your life. So, so don't do that. All the world wouldn't be worth it. The call to the discipleship is a call to something better than the world can offer you. Better than the world can offer you. And this is why, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you wonder why sometimes you see terrible things happening to Christians and them maintaining their faith and even maintaining their joy, it's because not only do, are they not finding their satisfaction in the world, but when those things are taken away from them, it's not their life. So it doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt when we lose even loved ones or when we, we have financial disasters, but those aren't our, that's not where our life is. Our life is in the next world. Our life is in Jesus Christ. The last reason why Jesus gives many um, here, why we should pursue him, I think it's, it's likely related to this idea of gaining your life, even by material possessions. Even if you go that route, and if you go that route, you're, you're not going to be 
likely the most bold evangelist, right? That's not going to be helpful for you in your evangelism because you're trying to keep your life. You want people to like you. And you want to do all that you can to accumulate good things or material things in your life. And so you're, you're more likely to do what verse 26 warns against, being ashamed. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Notice the person and message of Jesus are indivisible. Be, don't be ashamed of me or my words. Sometimes you'll hear um, today trying to divide those two things, like we're all for Jesus, Jesus was great, but man, these other words, these words in the New Testament, these words, Jesus is God. That's what he says. And God inspires the entire Bible. There's no part where we want to, we ever see Jesus kind of pitted against another section of Scripture to say, well, Jesus would never have agreed with Paul on this. It really boils down to being, we're either going to go with Jesus and what he said or not. We can't change and, and divide between him and his words. Our association with Jesus will bring about some level of shame in this world. Friends, you already, you already know this. And Jesus is not trying to get us to live in a way that we don't experience this rejection and shame. He's preparing us for it. And saying, don't even shy away from it. Don't, don't cave on me or my words. Whatever they would do to you, whatever they would say about you, it's worth it. It's worth losing your job over pronouns. It's worth even losing a relationship because you won't affirm someone in their sin. Jesus is worth losing friends. Friends, it's even worth losing our own life. I'm not saying it's easy. None of this seems easy. None of this language screams easy. It just says that it's worth it. So we're talking about bearing a cross. And that means public, painful. It involves humiliation and mocking and rejection. That's our road. And so, so as a church, we need to know that is our road. Faithfulness to Jesus will lead to these things. And so we need to know we, we are going to be lovingly honest with people about Jesus and the words of Jesus. We, we have to always be that. We want to always be that. It, in our flesh, it may feel like if we were to blunt some of the edges and, and take away some of those real specific sins that are called out in the Bible, that, that things would be better and we would be able to have a kind of this relationship that would work itself out. But ultimately, what we're calling people to is Jesus and the words of Jesus. So don't delude them. Don't be ashamed of them. You're not harming someone when you've told them the truth about what the Bible says, about their sin. The greatest harm you can do is not to be faithful to Jesus or his words. Because, look at verse 26 again. Not just that we, we don't want him to be ashamed of us when he comes. When he comes, he, doesn't, he says, be ashamed of me and my words. I'll be ashamed of you when I come. But verse 26 is saying, that's judgment day. Those people are going to experience judgment day. And if we don't give them Jesus, they are going to experience his 
judgment forever. And we're not going to be able to help them then. We, we have an opportunity now to speak the truth in love. And so if we're honest, we know that we're tempted. I'm tempted to be ashamed sometimes of the words of Jesus. Or we've backed away when we should have stood up and we should have spoken up. I've done that. The disciples would understand that more than anyone, wouldn't they? They're even, and as we read this story, they're, they're ashamed of Jesus um, when it matters most. Instead of taking up their cross, they left Jesus to his cross. Instead of denying themselves, they denied Jesus. Instead of proclaiming his greatness, they hid in secret. But Jesus, listen, Jesus isn't preaching justification by discipleship. You're only saved if your record is perfect at standing up against the world. That's not the gospel. He died to take away the shame of the disciples, all of their failures, all of our failures. And I think it's that reality that actually ignites their boldness. That you see, particularly in the book of Acts, you see that especially from, from Peter, the one who straight up denied Jesus in any association with Jesus. And now is this lion of a preacher in the book of Acts. Jesus restores Peter in John 21. He calls him to feed his sheep three times, matching the times that Jesus or that Peter denied Jesus. And then we read this in John 21, 18. Truly, truly, Jesus is talking to Peter. I say to you, when you were young, you used to go and dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, John tells us, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Friends, I just want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. I want you to think about all those sermons that Peter preached in the book of Acts, knowing this. His road was the road of Jesus. Cross, tradition says, upside down. Look, think about what he says. You used to do what you wanted to do, Peter. But there's going to be a day when someone dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. Follow me. That's our call. That's our call. Peter ran the race faithfully. That says that this life, even if it ends in a brutal death, which none of us have that clear promise from Jesus, brutal death, it's worth it. It's worth it. The last verse here in our passage gives us just a glimpse of hope, I think, for the disciples on their road to discipleship. This will be brief. We'll just mention this here, the hope of discipleship. Number three, this is the way this section ends. But I tell you that truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. A lot of opinions about this, this verse. But since he's addressing people here that are standing with him at that moment, I think that limits our options as we're interpreting this. Okay, those that are standing with him at that moment, they're not going to taste death. So, um, and I think the, the nearest and the clearest place to this passage that we see this fulfilled is the transfiguration. We're going to see that next week. 
Okay, if you just look to the next verses, we're going we're gonna to see that, that happen. The Father in his glory is going to literally speak from heaven. They're going to see Jesus in all his shining glory. And Luke's going to record that for us. So I think that's the nearest and most natural way to see this. But those standing with him are also, except one, going to witness the resurrection. They're going to witness the ascension. They're going to witness the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. All those things. They're going to witness the destruction, likely, of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Okay, so all these things are going to be just stacking up these signs of the coming of the kingdom, the rule of God through Jesus Christ. And they're going to serve as encouragements of hope for the disciples as they seek to follow Jesus and witness Jesus, take up their cross daily and follow him. So I think that the takeaway is it would be madness. It would be madness to continue to live for yourself, knowing what we know about Jesus, seeing what we've seen, hearing what we've heard. We're, we're called as a church to help one another in this, to encourage one another, aren't we? To, to take up our cross and to love each other with a love that's not rooted in our circumstances, but rooted in the gospel. Not to do this just on our own. So friend, let me just ask you, what are you living for today? What are you, what are you living for? What is your daily motivation for life? What is your life revolving around? What are you then hoping to gain by all those actions that you're doing? What are you hoping to gain from it today and tomorrow? Is it really money? Is it really possessions? Satisfying your lust? Is it just having the approval of someone else in your life? And if it is, what have you got it? What have you had all those things? How long would those rewards last? What benefit will they have when they lower you into the ground and cover your body with dirt and then you stand face to face with a holy God. Jesus is calling you to enter true life, eternal life. Trust in his cross and resurrection. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Live for him. Not for yourself. That's where true life is found. It comes through the path of death. Death and resurrection. Cross, then a crown. Endless joy. Jim Elliott said this, and we'll close with this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, we pray now as we come to worship you, we would do it, Lord, with so much thankfulness that we would see Galatians 2.20 and know that it has been done, it is finished, and that you have then enabled us now to go and take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we pray that you would do that in us by the power of your Spirit. And that you would even now be preparing our hearts for, for taking the Lord's Supper. Even now, in this reminder that it's not in us. It's in this alien righteousness of Jesus Christ that we put our faith and trust in. That's where true life is. This world is not our home. May we live for our true home, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.